morning, everyone. If you have a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1, we are in our second week in our study of Exodus. And we can really view Exodus as chapter 2 of 5 in the Pentateuch. We're not starting a new story. We're continuing a story that began with the beginning of everything in the book of Genesis and God calling a people to himself and setting apart a covenant people for his own possession. And last week we saw this great turn for the worse among the people of God. They ended Genesis in Egypt. Uh, they went there because God appointed Joseph for the salvation of their people, and he was second in command in all of Egypt. But then there arose a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph and did not show Israel the kindness that he had shown to them for Joseph's sake previously, or that his fathers had. Instead, we saw he ruthlessly enslaved them and put them to bitter labor to try to suppress them. And even though God was not explicitly mentioned in the first 14 verses of Exodus 1, we saw God providentially continuing to bless Israel with being fruitful and multiplying. Despite Pharaoh's efforts, he could not suppress them from becoming a great nation. So the question is, what would Pharaoh do now? And what would God do? The God that, to this point, we haven't seen explicitly mentioned yet. Would he come through and how? So if you're physically able, stand with me uh, in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to be in Exodus chapter 1, verse 15 through 22 this morning. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, see and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it, a daughter, if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this? And let the male children live. And the midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile but you shall let every daughter live. Let's pray. Holy God, your people have gathered here to worship you, for you to be pleased and enthroned on our praises and to hear from you. Lord, we pray that you would come and that you would convict us and confront us by your word and that you would conform us to the image of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I'd like to begin this morning by posing a question to you. Who or what do you fear? 
Have you thought about that in a while? If someone was going to ask you, what's your greatest fear? Or consistently, what gives you anxiety or worry in your life? What would you say? Rational fear is a gift from God. It's that natural hardwiring that protects you and keeps you either in a, a fight or a flight mode that could get you into trouble but could also save your life. But most of us have irrational fears or things that we fear more than we trust God. So it could be something as simple as fearing heights and the knowledge that God is your keeper and protector and that everything is under his control can help you fight against that irrational fear. You could be afraid that you won't have enough provision for your family, but you can fight that by, as we saw in our last series, seeking first the kingdom of God and trusting that everything belongs to him and he cares for you and he has promised to provide for what you need as you seek and trust him first. <clears throat> Excuse me. Many, many people, if they're honest, have a self-protective fear of man. Fear of what others think or of being disliked or ostracized or you have a fear of conflict or you have a fear of persecution or violence. And so today the Lord wants to teach us how to trust and honor God in the midst of real present danger and fear. And so the first thing I want to observe with you from our text is the man to fear. And that's what we see in Pharaoh. If there was ever a fear of man worth having, someone worth being afraid of, it was this man. If you want to go ahead just to get yourself in the right framework or mindset, think Hitler, think Stalin. This is a vicious tyrant who is on a murderous rage to control people and to have power for himself. So we touched last week on the truth that Pharaoh in this account truly represents the devil himself, that this is the seed of the serpent coming against the offspring of the woman. He was of his father, the devil, and he represents his father with chilling accuracy in this account. If you've seen pictures of the pharaohs of Egypt, you've probably seen this headdress that they would wear. And if you look above their forehead, there's this cobra that comes out of their headdress. And it was their symbol for royalty and divinity was this snake. And it's, it's not a coincidence. It's that ancient serpent of old that defined and marked their rule over people. And the pharaohs exalted themselves as gods, literally as Pharaoh viewed himself as the incarnate son of their primary god, Ra, the sun god. And so this is counterfeit antichrist from the word go. And he exalts himself against every other god, every other rival to power or his throne. And so in Exodus 5, we'll read when Moses comes and says, the Lord has commanded, let my people go, that they should worship and serve me. Pharaoh's response is, who is the Lord that I should let the people go, right? I, I am God. Who is the so-called God that would command me to let his people go? This man was vicious 
and he acted in pride to secure his power. And last week we saw him enslave Israel and treat them ruthlessly. And then in our text this morning, we see that when he finds that his effects at cowing the people of Israel to keep them from multiplying was not effective, then he commands the midwives to slaughter the infant sons of the Hebrews. Now, I want you to note that the command was not for them to slaughter all the Israelites or even all the infants because they, they enjoyed the slaves. They had use of the servants and the girls would grow up to become women to use. And so we'll leave them. We'll keep them. And, but the sons will grow up to be men who will be strong and who fight. And so they must go. This is an evil, evil man with great power, viciously ruthless. We'll come back to these courageous midwives, but when they refuse to obey the Pharaoh's orders, he commands all his people in all the land of Egypt to go after these infant sons of the Hebrews and cast them into the Nile. This is setting up this great battle between God and Satan, between God and Pharaoh, where God will say throughout, he will get glory over this great wickedness, this great evil. And just like he threw God's chosen people into the Nile, that they would be destroyed with water in the Exodus. There's nothing more demonic and evil than the slaughter of precious and innocent children. And like he would seek to do through Haman in the story of Esther, or like he did in Herod coming after the children of Bethlehem, Satan worked through his servant to come against the offspring of the people of God. Satan is that great red dragon that John describes in Revelation chapter 12 that sits at the birthstool of the woman waiting till the child is born so that he might devour it. Satan is, this is terror and it is war against the people of God and against Christ himself. His violence to Israel threatened the elimination of God's chosen people. You think if he is effective here, the men are destroyed and the women are assimilated into the Egyptian people. There is no people of God. There is no promise of God. There's no coming offspring of Abraham. There's no Christ. There's no salvation. There's no hope for us as the people of God. There's no church if he's successful in this. This man was full of the spirit of the Antichrist. And he acted with cunningness, with cunning, ruthlessness, and murderous rage. So as far as men go, he was a man to be feared. Now enter the fear of God. Verse 17, we see this as the Bible often will have these great contrasts where you read, but, and it's this hope, it's this great hinge where we see the activity of God at work. And there's a, a very surprising and unlikely hero in this story, these Hebrew midwives, which we're going to get to. But verse 17 begins with, but the Hebrew midwives. Now that, when you're thinking about this murderous rage of this vicious Hitler-like tyrant, you would not expect to read, but the Hebrew midwives. But these women feared 
God. Now, I want to look with you at the fear of God, and then we're going to come back to the Hebrew midwives. Throughout the word of God, God is extolled as worthy of the fear of all that he has made. Christians, I think, sometimes can have a hard time contemplating the fear of God because you don't know, how, how do I fear God in a right way? Is, was the fear of God for before I came to Christ, how do I fear him now? Usually my, my fear is mixed with the fear of judgment, but I know Christ has taken that, so how do I fear God in a way that honors him or is pleasing to him? But the fear of God is fundamental to the Christian life. It is literally one of the primary distinctions of the righteous who place our trust in God and the unrighteous who are described as having no fear of God before their eyes. The difference is that faith sees God as he is. And everyone who sees God as he is fears him. He is the holy, uncreated God, and we are creatures. And so whenever you see anyone in the Bible seeing God as he is, they fall on their face in their unworthiness in fear and reverence before his holiness and his greatness. And there is no exception. The sheer presence of his glory and his presence puts creatures on their faces. Psalm 147, the psalmist says, the Lord takes pleasure in those who fear him. This is something that pleases God when you fear him rightly. Proverbs 1.7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. That knowledge and wisdom actually begin when you fear God. And so what does it mean? What does it mean to fear God and how do we fear him appropriately? So Martin Luther, famous reformer, made a distinction between servile fear and filial fear to help Christians understand what the Bible means by fearing God and what it does not mean. And so I'm, I'm saying the location of this kind of fear is in Christ. So hear that. If if you're outside of Christ, you've yet to place your trust in Christ, then the only kind of fear you can know is servile fear. It is a fear of a master over a slave or a prisoner awaiting judgment. It is all fear of judgment and what you would imagine outside of Christ standing before a holy God and giving an account for your life. That is servile fear. But in Christ, we ought to have a filial fear, not a servile fear, as his children. Filial fear is the fear a child would have for his kind and authoritative father. Children honor their parents and fear displeasing them or fear their righteous discipline. And so this is the kind of fear that we should have for a righteous and holy God who has adopted us into his family and allows us to call him father. <clears throat> Zacharias Ursinus says in his commentary on the Heidelberg Confession, which if you're naming sons and you have options, this is pretty strong. Zacharias Ursinus. I don't know which one you would go with, but Ursinus sounds pretty strong. He says expounding on these definitions of servile and filial fear. Filial fear does not turn away from God, but hates sin above everything else and fears to offend God. 
Servile fear is a flight in hatred, not of sin, but of punishment and of divine judgment, and so of God himself. So there's a difference between running from punishment in your self-interest and self-preservation that actually leads to a running from God and a being afraid of God himself against the, the punishment of your sin. That is not appropriate for Christians in who are in Christ, who has taken their condemnation for them. But we are called to a fear of God that is full of awe and trembling and worship, a fear of displeasing him as our father. And so to glory in the fear of God together and to further examine the fuel of these midwives' courage, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 33 and 34. So if you have your Bible, flip over to your right towards the middle. We have been, did I say Exodus or Psalms? Psalm 33, 34. We just read this in the last week or so in our reading plan together, which if you're not doing our Bible in two years plan with us, we just started in January and there is still time for you to jump in and uh, just pick up where we are and it it will be for your joy and for us to have a, a common place of reading and worshiping God together as a church. But this command to fear the Lord comes to all the earth. So there's, there's verses like in Psalm 96, verse 9, where the psalmist says, Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. So the command to fear God, the call to fear God, comes to every single person you know and every single person on planet earth. But the call also comes especially to his people. So, You can see this in Psalm 34, verse 8 and 9. Here's a familiar verse. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. And we say, amen. The next verse says, oh, fear the Lord, you his saints. Fear him. So I want to see from these two chapters uh, quickly, these parallelisms in poetry, in Psalms, where the psalmist will basically say the same thing twice. And it's by looking at these verses, we can observe from David, what does it mean to fear God? How can we fear him rightly as his children? And then how by the fear of God can we be like the Hebrew midwives who in the fear of God acted courageously for the salvation of many lives? So first from Psalm 33 verse 8 We see to fear God is to stand in awe of God. Verse 8 of Psalm 33 says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. So do you see what I mean by parallelism? Where it says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Now I'm going to say the exact same thing and expound on what I mean by fear of the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe awe of him. So the very first thing that it means to fear God is to stand in awe of who he is, his character, his worth, his majesty. It is, as we've said in the past, to live before God like he is who he is, and you are who you are. And that disparity, that distance between a God who is holy and us and our unworthiness 
puts us on our faces before him and we live in awe of him. This is the same as the call to be still and to know that he is God. For you to come in the morning and open your Bible with trembling fingers and a worshipful heart that is full of trembling and wonder that you are invited in to commune with majesty. He is the maker and he is holy. So this is full of us remembering that God is in heaven and that Christ is the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. We don't give him less trembling or fear than we would before meeting somebody important and you're sitting there like scared of actually interacting with a king or a president and Jesus is the creator, the sustainer of all things. We don't let familiarity with Christ somehow curb our fear of him as the ruler and the maker that he is. Instead of giving us what we deserve, he has granted us his righteousness and has taken our sin on himself, which is reason for further fear of him. David says it this way in Psalm 130, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? That's where the fear of God begins, is knowing if he should count my sin against me, I have zero hope. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Who is like him? Not counting our sins against us, but removing them from us as far as the east is from the west. So it's not just standing in awe of his holiness that moves us to fear, but in awe of his forgiveness and his love and his kindness that is so unlike any other love we have ever known. And it puts us on our face in awe that he would forgive even us. We tremble that we have been bought by the blood of God. We tremble that that is what it costs and we tremble that he's paid the price and that we are not our own. Our time is not our own. Our money is not our own. Our body is not our own. We have been bought with a price and it puts us in awe of God. We tremble that this God has called us friend, that this God is not ashamed to call you son and daughter, and that Christ is not ashamed to call you brother. I, I read this <clears throat> this week. I guess we all did. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting used to that. In Exodus 20, when God comes in his presence to Mount Sinai at the giving of the law, and the, the mountain is quaking and shaking with the presence of God, and it is on fire. And God invites the people to come near, and they hear his voice, and they plead with Moses, Please, you talk with God and tell us what he says. Well, we cannot bear to hear the voice of God. And God says, do not be afraid. I have done this to test you so that the fear of me may be in you. So he says, don't be afraid. Servile fear. I'm not going to kill you right now. That's what you feel like by me showing up on the mountain. But I have shown up to test you so that the fear of me may be in you all your days and that you may not sin against me. And so in Hebrews, the writer of Hebrews says, we've come to a more glorious mountain. We haven't come to a different presence of God 
It's not like Jesus has somehow made God more placid or nice. He is holy and is a consuming fire, and we have come to him now clothed in righteousness, which is only further reason for fear and awe and wonder. And so the writer of Hebrews in chapter 12, verse 28 and 29, exhorts us saying, therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Or the King James says, godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. You want to offer God acceptable worship? It needs to see him as he is and be filled with awe and wonder and trembling. Second, from Psalm 33 and 34, we see that the fear of God is to hope in God's steadfast love. So look at chapter 33, verse 18. David writes, Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, Here you go again, on those who hope in his steadfast love. So what does it mean to fear God? It means hoping in his steadfast love. And if you were to look back at the context of 16 through 22, it is not hoping in other things. Not hoping in deliverance or salvation from anywhere else. We don't put our hope in money or our own strength or our own wisdom. It is putting our hope in God and in his love alone, that he is our help and our shield. And so we wait for the Lord and we trust him, knowing that he's good and he loves us and that he keeps covenant with us in Christ. Third, we see that to fear God is to seek God. So look at chapter 34, verse 9 and 10. David writes, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, But those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. And so David is saying, if we seek God, if we choose to honor God, you will not lack one thing that you need in your life. And so if we take that into the context of the fear of man, if we seek the Lord, he is our all and our steadfast, his love is our hope, and we are seeking him first, then we will not lack whatever we think we need or are seeking to avoid by the fear of man, right? He is our protection. He is our shield. And he is our hope in the face of great uncertainty, in the face of potential loss, in the face of legitimate fears. We can seek God first and choose to trust him and to obey him, believing that we will not lack protection We will not lack safety or care or his comfort if we seek him first. That's what it means to fear God. And fourth and finally from chapter 34, to fear God is to walk in and work out his holiness. It's to walk in and to work out his holiness. Look at verse 11 through 14 of Psalm 34. Come, O children, and listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. That's that's why we're here this morning. We need to learn how to fear the Lord more than we do. And he says, come to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. 
I, I titled that to walk in and to work out his holiness. Because as Eric prayed, so often if we are operating in our own strength, we see the deeds of the flesh. And there's a great contrast to walking by God's spirit and working out the fruit of the spirit with fear and trembling. But we have to choose to say no to what is evil and to delight in what is good. We have to choose to deny ourselves and to walk by God's Holy Spirit. And fearing God in this way has very practical implications for life. We are choosing to hate what God hates and to call good what God calls good and to do good and to choose to honor Him in life. So the fear of God is choosing righteousness and His commandments over the path of safety, comfort, and ease. I, I don't know if it was A.W. Tozer, but usually if I don't know, I attribute stuff to him because I love him. But the fear of God looks like consciously being aware of the presence of God, of living life before his face and choosing to act in righteousness and not to act in sin because God is here and he is holy. And so Psalm 112 says that the fear of God is delighting to obey him. And we remember from that definition of filial fear, it is fearing to displease him. And so, like the psalmist says, we turn away from evil and we do good. It's what it means to fear God, to live life consciously aware of his presence and to turn away from evil and instead to do what is good. So, with that understanding of the fear of God, let's go back to the Hebrew midwives. So this Hebrew midwives, you could, you could title this, what they're doing is faith that works in the fear of God. That's what they're doing. They have a faith in God that fears him more than they fear anything else. Now, it is significant that the first mention of God in all of Exodus comes in the context of fearing him. This is the first mention of God. It's these women who are probably not the only Hebrew midwives in Egypt. If Israel is multiplying like crazy, it's probably not just two ladies that are getting the whole thing done. But probably they are representative of a whole group of midwives, a midwife, midwifery practice, if you will, that they are interfacing with Pharaoh and... These women are, Pharaoh's name is not given. Uh, even Moses' mother's name in that account is not given. But God honors these women as fearing him and gives us their names, Shifra and Pua. And they had an appropriate desire to honor and obey God. And they wanted to obey God more than they wanted to live. They wanted to tell the truth about God and his character and his ways more than they wanted to preserve their own lives. And I think we have, to, we have to remember how evil and wicked this Pharaoh is and the, the bravery that it took to choose to disobey this king's edict when it could cost them everything. 
But the fear of God loomed larger and weighed more to them than the fear of man ever could, even the fear of this Pharaoh. Now, I want to address their lying because I think we'd be remiss if they didn't. And a lot of people try to work around this saying, yeah, it, it was probably like a white lie, like maybe. I mean, Hebrew women probably were a little more rigorous than the Egyptian women, so maybe that was true. You know, they didn't lie, but they obscured the truth of what they were doing on purpose. And so whether or not they told, I don't know why they call them white lies, like people want to feel less bad about them. So it's like, hey, I, I told a little fib uh, to preserve their lives and to continue the righteous things that they were doing. Some people get onto them for lying and understandably so because we know from God's word that he hates a lying tongue. We see in Acts chapter five, when Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit, God kills them on the spot. So, so lying is not a casual matter. It's not like, I think sometimes we read this and we go, whew, I feel a little bit better about, you know, kind of working my way around some truths sometimes because God didn't say anything about it when they did it. But there was a great difference between uh, obscuring the truth for some greater God-glorifying aim when life is at stake and lying to self-protect, lying to gain for yourself. And that, I think, is the great difference here. You think about Rahab, who is condoned and honored for her faith in hiding the Israelite spies at Jericho. She lied through her teeth, and she's honored as having great faith because she was accomplishing some greater God-glorifying aim, and life was at stake. So what the Hebrew midwives did here is akin to hiding Jews uh, when the Nazis were looking for them during World War II. And you're not going to get some kind of badge of being like, they're in there. <laughs> and like, you're righteous because you told the truth, but you totally didn't do what it took for the preservation of their lives and this greater act of righteousness. So, I want to make sure you caught that whole section and that you're hearing me. It is not okay to lie. You, know, you got to be careful with your like, I am lying for some greater God-glorifying aim here. But God honors them. It doesn't say anything about whether or not they should have or should not have lied in this case. We just know that because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh, and they chose to obey God rather than to obey men. God honored them. God blessed them. It, the language could be that he blessed Israel with families because of them, but also likely that he blessed them with families. And so how awesome is it that God is honoring them by giving them the very thing that Pharaoh is trying to prevent in the multiplication of offspring. Because they feared God, God blessed them and Israel. And their obedience to God rather than to men preserves the line of Christ. It preserves the people of God. It, it 
preserves the coming seed of Abraham and it sets up the birth of Moses, who would be Israel's deliverer, as we would see in the next chapter. He would be a type of Christ to come. And all of this picture and Israel and the church and salvation itself we have because these Hebrew women feared God more than they feared men. So what are the implications for us today? How can we follow in their footsteps? These things are written for our instruction, that by their example, we could walk in their same kind of godliness and God might use us for the preservation of many lives. So I'm closing with three quick ways that we can fear God today over and above the fear of man. So that is the title of the first, Fearing God More Than Men. Church, we are called to fear God more than wicked rulers, more than employers and HR departments, more than neighbors and parents and school boards or anyone else that you can think of. We must say with Peter and the apostles and the Hebrew midwives that we must obey God rather than man. And we need to obey all that God has said and stand for all that God has said because it is all God's word, not just the things that we feel like are gospel. So you may feel a little extra bold if somebody denies the divinity of Christ. But if somebody goes against some law of God or something that God has said, you may be feel more inclined to skirt your way around. But fearing God more than man has far-reaching implications. So I wrote down a few. From you seeking God first above the expectations and demands of an employer. So a, a lot of people might keep from being here on a Sunday morning because an employer expects you to work or some client expects for you to get this job done, but you fear God more than you fear their expectations or their demands because God has said, do not neglect gathering together with my people on the Lord's day for, to encourage one another, as is the habit of some. And so we fear God more than man. It, it looks like lovingly refusing to go along with using someone's preferred pronouns because the one God has spoken and has designed his world and ordered his world and we fear God more than we fear man. Fearing God more than man means you don't allow what the one God has said to be changed over time. Just reinterpreted by the tides of people's feelings and desires or perversions. So God has spoken in his word and we stand with him and declare it without apologizing for him because we fear God and not man. We don't cater to an employer's expectations, like I said, as if displeasing them is worse than displeasing God. So that's really what you have to do when you think about fearing God more than man is put them up next to each other. What am I fearing displeasing man whose breath is in his nostrils versus displeasing God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And I think where this happens for us, church, is when we feel like God is so merciful that he is movable. 
We know him to be gracious and kind, so we think, well, he understands, and he'll be gracious with me, but this person is ruthless, and I, I, I've got to dodge the immediate danger, and then I'll, I'd rather deal with the aftermath with God later. We don't lie to save ourselves or to console unbelievers in their blindness. We fear God more than them, and we love them by holding forth the truth. Second, we, we fear God today by standing up against true injustice and sin, particularly when it's unpopular and costly to do so. So I think about just from Exodus 1, when it sure seems like Pharaoh is keeping the Hebrew girls around for slavery, for trafficking, and we should stand up against the injustice of sex trafficking. It's even particularly appropriate to talk about that on Super Bowl Sunday when this is like the greatest sex trafficking event of all the year. And it is a heinous evil in the sight of God and it should be stand, stood against. And there are injustices to stand against that are way less acceptable in the culture, like standing up against the pornography that fuels the sex trafficking and you actually confronting a brother in his sin and choosing to fear God over him, over the confrontation, over him being displeased with you or mad at you, but actually confronting sin where you see it in a brother or sister, or standing up against the slaughter of unborn innocent children and going to Jesus outside the gate and bearing his reproach when the whole world is in the wickedness of this murderous rage on the altar of so-called women's rights and it will be unpopular for you to stand up and say, thus says the Lord. And to stand up for life and to fight for them until abortion is unthinkable in our land or the great dragon behind their deaths is crushed under our feet, whichever comes first. And then last we fear God by speaking up for the gospel. We are called to proclaim Christ in love and without apology to a lost and dying world. We must proclaim the gospel to a world in need of the king's salvation. And if they're going to hear the good news of what God has done for them in Christ, they must first hear the terrifying news of there being a holy God to whom they are accountable and they are under his righteous wrath because they have offended him in their sin. And God, being rich in love because of the great love with which he loved us, sent forth his son and made a way for them to escape the wages of sin, which is certain eternal death. But the free gift of God only found in Jesus Christ is eternal life and that they must repent and turn from their self-rule and themselves in order to come to him for life. Jesus said that the Holy Spirit would testify concerning him and that he would convict the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. And he works through your words. As you 
use the word of God to exalt Christ and to call people to him, some places the Holy Spirit will convict and people will be broken with conviction and a sorrow over their sin and they will turn to Christ and others will crucify you for it. And we must fear God rather than man. It's the same serpent who is behind the violence towards the Hebrew children is the same one who's behind the warfare against you to keep you quiet about Christ, to keep you apologetic about Christ, to keep Christ in a, this is what I believe, but I won't tell you in a way that's too offensive. But this is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10, and I'm closing with this. This is the conclusion. Jesus says in Matthew 10, verse 26 through 33, Have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light. And what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. Do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. So hear the words of Christ, church. You are of great value to him. You are of great value to your Father in heaven, and he is worthy of your fear, not men. And so our question and where I close is, will we fear God and declare with our lives we must obey God rather than men and hold forth Christ and his righteousness and in doing so be used of him like the midwives for the salvation of many lives. I pray it is so. Let's pray. Father, who is like you, majestic in splendor and holiness. You are alone worthy of our awe and our worship and our hope and our seeking and our obedience. Thank you for the example that we have in these courageous Hebrew women who chose to honor you and to act in righteousness with great courage rather than act in self-protection. Lord, help us to learn from their example. Apart from you, we will continue on in the fear of man. We will be quiet when we ought to speak about Christ and the gospel. We'll continue to let injustices and sin go unchecked and unwarned. And 
will continue to apologize or excuse ourselves when we ought to be speaking for Christ and righteousness sake. Lord, forgive us. Please help us to fear you appropriately. Thank you that in Christ, our judgment and our guilt have been removed from us so that we no longer have the terrifying expectation of judgment. Christ has taken our wrath for us. Please help us to learn how to fear you like children who know our Father is a consuming fire. Help us, Lord, to be holy like you are holy and to conduct ourselves with fear during the time of our sojourning, knowing that you have called us to it. In Jesus' name, amen.